0: Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbett and I'm the host of the podcast that looks under the hood of campaigns past and present. Today we're looking at the anti-apartheid movement. The anti-apartheid movement was a British organisation that was at the centre of the international movement opposing the South African apartheid regime and supporting uh, the non-white population who were persecuted by the policies of Apartheid. While uh, countries throughout the world took various measures to weaken apartheid, it was the anti-apartheid movements in the UK, the Netherlands, and also in the US that mounted the most serious challenge to the apartheid state. And I think it's fair to say the UK was perhaps the most effective of all all of those those movements. By the late 1980s, the movement in the UK had unleashed a wide range of campaigns and established branches throughout the country. The movement um, developed a campaign that became one of the most perhaps powerful international solidarity movements in history. Um, And it was the pursuit of boycotts and also seeking government sanctions that perhaps underlay that that campaign that that was particularly successful. Um, And it's a model that's been used subsequently in other settings and and also in the UK to to weaken and uh, and eventually displace other regimes. In this interview, I speak with three anti-apartheid activists and organizers from the time. Uh, they were mostly active in the 1980s, so I guess the, the peak of the movement. Chitra Karve was an anti-apartheid movement staff member from 1986 to 1989. And she helped organise the 1988 Nelson Mandela Freedom at 70 campaign. She was a member of the organisation's women's and black solidarity committees and was chair of the latter. Suresh Kamath was formerly vice chair of the, the entire anti-apartheid movement in the UK and helped to organise the Freedom Concert at Wembley uh, in 1990 to mark the release of Nelson Mandela. Tim Oshody joined anti-apartheid in 1985, and he was chair of the London School of Economics anti-apartheid group and took part in the occupation of, of the LSE to put pressure on it to disinvest from South Africa. He was a researcher for the movement's disinvestment campaign and was a member of the Black Solidarity Committee. So I think all three of my guests are really interesting and have different but complementary perspectives and memories about that period, and they I think they have really interesting insights about what uh, you know was the most important aspects of the campaign or what the lessons were, um, and so I, I think you know you'll enjoy what they have to say, but I think it's also you know very relevant for for what's going on today. And lessons for modern day campaigners. So here are Chitra, Tim and Suresh, and they're talking about the anti-apartheid movement. Hello, and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbet. I'm here with Chitra, Suresh, and Tim. And we're talking about the anti-apartheid movement and the the campaigns around that. Uh, And just to to kick off, and um, perhaps I could start with you, Suresh. Could you say a bit about how the issue of apartheid and the opposition to it and the campaigning around it rose up the agenda in
1: in the 60s and 70s in the UK? Yeah, I suppose it first started uh, in the late 50s, I mean, with the anti-colonial movement in this country, and the fact that there were a number of um, South Africans and Africans who later went on to become leaders of their own countries, and people like Julius Nyeri. And uh, the uh, as the suppression of uh, black people in South Africa increased throughout the 50s, you've got to remember, the laws became more and more strict, the past laws Uh, where you could go, uh, the homelands uh, uh, being established. And uh, when South Africans in this country and Africans who were aware of this organized with the anti-colonial movement in uh, this country, and in about 1959, the boycott movement started. um, And there was petitions and demonstrations organized. And then particularly following the Sharpeville massacre, uh, in 1960, there were big demonstrations in London and uh, the anti-apartheid movement was born. And right. then again, after the Rivonia trials in uh, 63, it became another impetus for the development of the campaigns against apartheid in this country and other parts of the world.
0: And when, when do we, is there a time when you, you felt it sort of reached its peak? When was the sort of really sort of high-energy part of the movement, would you say, was that in the 80s?
2: Yeah, for me, I think it would be the 80s, because by then the campaign had picked up an enormous number of uh, supporters and members. We had local groups all over the country. It was astonishing. Um, They um, campaigned independently, so there was something happening in every part of the country, I think almost every week by then Mm -hmm. in the 1980s. And it was probably the time when it was probably one of the largest organisations that Britain had ever had uh, campaigning on a single issue. We also had a very clear enemy who was uh, the Margaret Thatcher, the leader of the Conservative Party, who was absolutely against um, any form of sanctions or boycotting Mm. the state. So that made our message very clear.
3: And also I think things like musically... I mean, the fact that Jerry Dammers, you know, Free Mandela, and Mandela himself, that as a symbol, uh, uh, you know, that, that really came across uh, as artists against apartheid, as architects against apartheid. That, so people could do it in lots of different ways. The boycott, the shell, you know, really reached in. And all the students knew there something very specific. Uh, it was a very clear injustice, which, I mean, most people um, agree as well.
0: But starting perhaps with you, Suresh, is there one or two or three things that you were involved with personally with the anti-apartheid movement you thought was particularly important or impactful or, or was particularly high profile or, you know, that was particularly interesting that you could share?
1: I think, there, yeah, there were a number of things. I mean, I think, uh, as Tim just said, about the music and uh, the Free Mandela movement. But before that, I mean, I think what became made quite an impact, particularly amongst the students, you've got to remember that in the 1970s, the Antipode movement was actually relatively small. There were about 2,000 members across the country. We had a few branches, you know, then active people, but it was relatively small. But it wasn't until much later. Uh, But I think the impact of uh, the Soweto uprisings and the way that they were suppressed and how it was shown on television Mm. um, in the 70s, that actually made quite an impact on people. The other thing I think that you've got to understand is I think the organization of the anti-apartheid movement and how we worked, we were trying to work across all aspects of British life. And as Tim has mentioned, Architects Against Apartheid, uh, but Mm -hmm. we had, you know, involvement with the local groups, students, church organizations. And, and, you know, the groundwork had been done in the 70s. There was, you know, a lot of activity working with the trade union movement, for example, trying to work with the political parties. I know the Conservatives were particularly opposed to a lot of our policies, but we worked with the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, you know. So I think the breadth of the the organisation is very important to what came later. And for me, I mean, I think uh, because following our um, organization of, uh, of a concert at Clapham Common, uh, which politically and in terms of numbers was terrifically successful, but financially disastrous for the AAM, <laughs> you know, um, and then following that, from, you know, the Mandela concerts at uh, mm. uh, Wembley Stadium, mm. which I was particularly involved with, yes. I think that made a huge impact, particularly yeah. the fact that it was broadcast, you know, all over the world yeah and so you
0: talk about um this this sort of movement growing over this time to what extent did it grow organically in other words people setting up groups and and self organizing and to what extent was it a kind of central or devolved function that was that was actually setting up a trade union group and it was, you know, just to get a sense of how organic versus how planned it was
2: So, I think it's a really difficult question to answer because I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, And I think that having leaders in, for example, student groups and trade unions made a big difference Mm. because they already had local group structures. And it was through those structures that the message could be delivered. People from all over the country spoke at these meetings, including people on the executive committee like Suresh, they used to go and speak at meetings. And there from there would come a local group that would hive off, if you like, from the student movement or something like that, and create a local group in the area that would draw on everybody in the area. So there's something like there's something organic about that. Having said that, the anti-party movement was quite careful in that in its a very small staff group, because I think when I joined the staff group, there were only about six people there by the time I left. There were, I don't know, fifty. But um, six or eight people there, one of them was a trade union person, one of them was a local groups person. So, you know, we focused on trying to get more people to join us. We also worked with local authorities. And there were a number of other small organizations scattered about, like SATIS, the South African – the organization to try and free imprisoned prisoners, political prisoners – and obviously the old Amnesty groups and so on, we tried to work through them as well to create that kind of uh, breadth of involvement that Serration, um, also Tim, have talked about. Music, I think, was important because Artists Against Apartheid started around 1986 and they put on a whole load of smaller um, concerts, culminating, if you like, in the Clapham Common concert, which was 1986. And that drew a lot of new audiences in with a very clear message. Mm. So I think there was us working through all these different organizations like churches, trade unions, student groups, but also some organic movement. And I think that came about because of the increase of information coming from South Africa. Earlier in the 60s, nobody knew what was really going on. It was a blanket ban on uh, press and so on. But as social media started opening up and as we started finding out about the massacres, the executions, mm. the oppression, what was happening with the past laws and so on. It became obvious it was a thing that you had to focus on. I think yeah. people do have moral, mm-hmm. um, mo- you know, people are moral and they made decisions and they thought, where can we go to express our outrage? And we were there.
3: I agree with you. For me, um, the morality really came with, with Trevor Huddleston. I came from a non-political family um, and uh, it's only when I was at college um, I was lucky enough to first of all hear Dennis Goldberg come and talk to our anti-apartheid group, and then um, Trevor Huddleston was invited, and uh, from his book "Note for Your Comfort," which really brought to attention apartheid in the 1950s, to him as a person. I mean, he's fantastic. Uh, this guy is. Uh, I was really lucky enough to to walk with him. He, he was he was 80 years old and still, the British state were afraid of this guy. You know, and it's quite amazing. When he spoke, he was just really clear. He, he he's questioned to the household is, am I my brother's keeper? You know, and I didn't quite understand <laughs> what that meant. But I mean, like it just, it, it kind of like went deep into you and just asks, you know, what what do you believe? Who are you about? You know, can we make the world a better place? Mm. And, but as well as that moral um, power, he also had the intellectual power to build and build a movement and work with people and lobby. I mean, he was, he was, from what I understand, he could have easily been uh, archbishop, but as a bishop of Stepney, he did loads of campaigning work and so on. And when he was down at um, St. James in Piccadilly, uh, really good work. And, and just, yeah, it was just that fact that when you're in the presence of someone like that, they just draw, draw, you know, they touch what's within you around what you believe. And you know, you could there's something you can do.
1: So I also think. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, just I also think the influence of the media at at mm. the time, as I said, the you know following the the uh, uprisings in Soweto, we were we were seeing these mm. images on television, mm. Mm. similar to the ones that we were getting from Vietnam, you know, and I think that had an impact, particularly on y- amongst young people, because they were seeing people of their own age being shot and mm. killed, yeah. and arrested for wanting their basic rights. Um, And so I think, yes, so it was organic, but it was also organized. I mean, Mm -hmm. as Chitra said, you know, we had a trade union committee, we had a multi-faith committee, we went on to have a black and ethnic minority committee, we worked with women's groups, then we had a women's committee. Um, So we were, as an anti apartheid movement, reaching out to all aspects of British society. And where people were drawn in, they started taking their own action Mm -hmm. and forming groups, and I think at one point we had over nearly 200 groups around the country. Yeah.
3: And also, I mean, just a, it reminds me a bit of now everyone's taking on the Black Lives Matter issue and they think, oh, did this just come up by chance? No, there was 10 years of work that went before that, mm-hmm. you know, that on the ground stuff, which is in the States. And then there was, a, you know, there's maybe a spark that really brings it in, but... I think Sue is absolutely right the organization you know the, the small groups of people come together and they say no we can make a change and then it builds and it builds so it sounds to me and you know reading
0: about uh, the movement that it, it wasn't quite leaderless but it didn't have but there wasn't sort of one single leader that everyone you know was sort of waiting on to to make to make a sort of pronouncement about what to do next at the same time you had this fantastic plethora of different groups and you know tentacles reaching into all parts of society did that ever produce tensions or problems either in in the sort of practical terms oh we we were doing something on that day and you've organized something the same day or you know were there political tensions within that different ways of you know arguments about tactics you know how sort of nonviolent versus you know more sort of lobbying or what what I just want to get a sense of that. Or was it just let a thousand flowers bloom and everyone was cool with it?
2: Um, I think depending on who you ask, you will get a different perspective on this. Um, there were arguments. And I think there were arguments more on political grounds or political campaigning grounds as opposed to what should we do on this particular day. Uh, I think that was pretty much organic and people did what they wanted on, on a particular time unless we would called a national march or something like that there were political problems um and i think that the anti apartheid movement had well it had different kinds of enemies didn't it it had enemies that were absolutely wanting us to die infiltrated us these were elements of the state elements of the south african state um so that was one but within the structures of the aam there were also people who thought we were wrong in our support of the African National Congress, so at that time was the mass, the majority organization that called upon people to um, campaign against apartheid within the country and indeed in exile. Uh, because there was all, there were other organizations. There was the Pan African uh, Congress. And uh, what I think the difficulties were, were that it was decided that if we were too supportive of one particular uh, of the ANC, then people who wanted to support the PAC thought that we weren't doing enough mm, right. to encourage the PAC's voice to be heard. That led to some splits within the AM. There weren't very many, mm. you know, one or two. I would say is mm. about it. And the most, the the, the deepest rift, I suppose, would be a split of what was the wider London committee into the City of London anti apartheid Group, which disagreed with us on these policies. And the London Committee, as it stayed, which was part of the antibiotic movement, mm. it was a political split,
3: right? Definitely, and also, I mean, we're humans. Humans argue. I mean, mm. you know, you argue with yourself, you argue with your wife, you know, or your oh. partner, and so on. So, I think that that is a natural thing. And and I just remember for us uh, organizing within the movement, there's maybe a, a different cultures, different traditions. So we had the, uh, um, you know, I was involved in the Black Solidarity Committee, and then there's a Women's Committee. And then there was a uh, um, some of the uh, leadership, the more professional leadership felt that they, they were, you know, um, there were um, maybe a risk that I might go off and do something different. So we had the fantastic, Alan Brooks is an amazing guy, uh, you know, really good um, leader. He he was there, he's a, he's a um, white activist, and he was there on the Black Solidarity Committee and he was also there on the Women's Committee. But, you know, uh, and like, you know, just to make sure that they didn't go off there. But it was, it was, so I think those are natural things uh, to come through. And and always, you always see this on the left, you know, because people believe in something passionately, they see it in a certain way. And then, you know, and then so like those clashes are, are going to come and I, I think they're, they're natural. I think being part of the leadership, I mean, um, what,
1: what I noticed at the time was uh, that as the organisation grew, there was a certain amount of nervousness with the the the, the top leaders of the anti-apartheid movement mm. that these groups would go in different directions uh, that was mm. that was the reason and i think it took some of us a lot of explaining to en- to ensure that you know look people are passionate about these things and they want to do things in a, a mm. in a different way to the ones that you know traditional white men white, might see as the we didn't necessarily express it in those terms in mm-hmm. those days mm-hmm. But of uh, that what it was, but as I said, I think the, the leadership was quite strong. Mm. They were quite clear about what the, uh, the aims were. Mm. And you know, and as uh, Chitra said, you know we had campaigns, and we wanted people for across the country to concentrate on those campaigns. Um, and uh, we want, you know, for example, if you have a big demonstration on a, you know, in London on in a particular then you would want to organize people around the country. Mm. And, but mm. as you start to go into this different Uh, communities, which we weren't necessarily always familiar with, particularly, say, in the black community, there was a certain amount of nervousness at the the leadership, uh, which came across as being wanting to stifle some of the organizations that people want
3: oh, to, yeah it rather for. than stifle so they, yeah. they, they if you're a traditional union organizer you used to do it in one way mm. and then and then these people come with different yeah, ideas you know or, or people organize differently you know it's a bit like now you know where' the older generation and the younger generation organize things differently and want to do things differently and there's always that you know uh, that um, that that classic, slightly different way of doing things. You know, I don't understand. Uh, there's a uh, social media in terms of TikTok and Slack, and there's no. And I don't know, I understand all that. But you know, those are the new ways in which people communicate. Yeah. You know, and, and so on. And uh, you know, well, one of the
0: things that uh, modern campaigns are, I'm so obsessed with. But a big focus of it is is messaging. You know, what's the message? Mm. What's the audience? What you know, getting the message right, controlling the message, so you don't undermine. You know, what your your bigger aims are was there talk about messaging at the time or was was it talked differently?
2: I mean, there was great talk about messaging. And I think we did not have the disadvantage of social media in those Mm. days. We didn't have a hundred different thousands, millions Mm. of people trying to jump on to put their own message in. So the leadership would talk about a message and it would be refined over discussion. I think the one that I would remember as being one of the clearest messages was the Free Nelson Mandela campaign. And it, it's quite interesting because why did we choose Nelson Mandela? Um, why make it free Nelson Mandela? He wasn't the only one yeah. imprisoned. Um, along with him were a number of leaders of the ANC as well. We chose him because it was recognized that one person, It was it was important to focus on one person, and it was one of the other leaders, Oliver Tambo, yeah. who was in exile at the time, who I think suggested that it should be Nelson Mandela because Nelson had a clear voice. He was somebody who other people looked up to, and he was a strong person. So I think he said, well, use Nelson Mandela as your focus point. And the Free Nelson Mandela campaign, well, how easy is that to say? You know, it's one person, you get his image out. He made a great speech at the Rivonia trial, which could be um, taken, cut into bits and then used um, in media campaigning. And so, getting one message was—I think—the power of the anti party mm. movement was ha- having that clear message. Yeah. So the overall message is end apartheid, crime against humanity. United Nations had recognised this, mm. and underneath that was the well. How do you do it? You isolate South Africa. What does that mean? Boycott, sanctions, free Nelson Mandela.
0: And I want to come back to um, to boycotts after the break, but and and just thinking about. Mandela and how I guess the current generation if we can we can say mm-hmm. that think about him but I also remember from my youth um, the, cons- the young conservatives producing t-shirts or
1: badges I think mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. saying hang Nelson hang Mandela. it was a it was a t-shirt which said uh, hang Nelson Mandela yeah mm-hmm. but I think you, know, you also the, the the campaign again didn't come out of isolation I mean that we we had a number of campaigns about political prisoners. Um, and, you know, I can remember standing outside uh, South Africa house on vigils when, uh, you know, mm. for example, Solomon Moshlengu was about yeah. to be hanged. Mm. And uh, you took it so seriously because, mm. you know, you knew that this man, young man was going to be hanged. And you felt personally that you had to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so from that From those sort of campaigns, and and Oscar Mampeta was another 79-year-old trade unionist who'd been uh, incarcerated within South Africa. So we had all campaigns which culminated in the the Mandela campaign because, again, you know, uh, you had the media to think about. And as Chitra said, we didn't have, you know, a plethora of media. Mm. You know, we had radio, newspapers and television. Um, And uh, so... And I think that the leadership, um, and I, th- I think I need to uh, particularly give credit to Mike Terry mm. and Bob Hughes, mm. yeah. the, the secretary uh, and the chair of the Antibagno, who kept us focused mm. Mm. on what was the target and uh, how we should work to ensure that we, we
3: get the support f- across the country. And just in that term like, about the Sol- Solomon... Um and he's hanging. The, the one medium was T-shirts, and we, were, uh, we had a really great designer, uh, <laughs> Sue Longbottom, and, and there was a fantastic T-shirt of, of Solomon uh, language image and the shell boycott you know and uh, and so on and and that those those really went across for the young people then you know i know people might find it quite strange but that was you know one of the ways in which you got your message across i just i just remember being really proud that i walked down the street with Mm -hmm. a t-shirt saying Mm -hmm. my message this is who i am you know and as a young person that was what you wanted to do you know you wanted to tell the world look this is what we believe in and this is how we got our message across so i mean in terms of um um so it's like, going back to your question, that thing that we had a really good designer and the designer of t-shirts yeah. really came across and that was a you know um that was an important tool. Actually our
2: merchandise was important. Mm, yeah. The badges, the leaflets, the stickers, we wore our beliefs. Yeah. I don't think that happened so much. And in anymore. terms
3: of the cups, the people right. took it into their into their homes. Mm-hmm. They they showed it the And that that started conversations when people would see a cup. In your house, or or your friends bought cups. Yes. Even if they weren't they weren't going to take all actions, but they they really believed in something. So why not buy a cup? I think we that was. I mean, I was a member of
1: a brand antipartite uh, group, uh, and we were one the first group to design a cup, um, which was uh, the, it when was actually free cup, Mandela. Do you mean a, um, a mug, mug, mug. Yeah, a tea mug? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and uh, we we had a logo on it, which was free Mandela. And a little story there about a young uh, African who'd uh, scrawl free Mandela on his tea mug and I think got sacked for, for doing so. Mm. And, and his comment was, well, I only used to drink tea out of it. <laughs> um, but as uh, Tim said, you know, the merchandise and things like the mug and I think the posters, mm. the design mm. of the posters, mm. I think you, you look at our website, uh, amarchives.org, mm you'll see dozens of posters, which, which is an art form in themselves, I yeah, think, right, yeah. you know, uh, which try to get the message across. And if you put these up in the um, student unions and in community yeah, sure. centres, they, they did attract Churches. attention. Yeah, posters were huge.
0: Mm. Um, I'm just gonna, we're going to take a, a short break. I will put the link in, in the description for, for the website. Take a short break there, and we'll be back in a moment talking about um, apartheid and the anti-apartheid movement. Back with Chitra Suresh and Tim talking about the anti-apartheid movement and I wanted to ask you all about uh, what I think was probably one of the main tactics but also a very important tactic for putting pressure on the apartheid regime, which was the, the boycotts and could so could we sort of reflect a bit about how how that became a tactic and how important it was
1: it was a tactic from the very beginning of the of the movement in fact the original name of the movement was the Boycott Movement, uh, which then evolved into the anti-apartheid Movement back in 1959. Um, and when they were setting up the organization, people became very aware of the trade that was going on between here and South Africa. And uh, that became the focus of to boycott South African goods from mm-hmm. the very beginning. But I mean, it was much later on, in the 70s and 80s, where it really took off, I think, um, you know. um, I think it, it,
2: sorry to interrupt, I think, yeah, yeah, you're right. It came as a, I think what is important for us to remember that this came from South Africa, from the people of South Africa. They asked for it. And it was crystallised in a message by Sir by Chief Albert Luthuli, who was then the um, president of the African National Congress, which is still right. quite a new organization. And he said, um, in order for um, apartheid to end, we must isolate South mm. Africa. And he understood that that would have some impact on black South Africans as well. But he said, in order to make any change at all, all trade must cease, um, because what it does is it shores up the economy of the apartheid regime. So that's, Sorry mm. yeah, Israel, no, that's, that's right, where it came right, from yeah but i mean yeah.
1: uh, that that's uh, yeah back from, from the very beginning as i said mm. a lot of the foundation of the anti movement came from uh, south african exiles and uh, other african le- leaders who later on became leaders of uh, their own countries yeah so the bu- boycott was uh, you know was in the very essence of the anti apartheid movement it's in, it,
3: yeah i think it's important to understand why it's essence because apartheid was an economic strategy I mean it had the cultural uh, you know impact as well but it was they wanted the wealth you know and yes. so the way to bring about the change was to um, challenge that and and um, I think that's really important and I I mean just when Chicha said isolate apartheid I just remember going in the crowds and it was isolate apartheid sanctions, sanctions now. now you know and it was it was and uh, it was that, and the fact that uh, that went clearly straight through and in what you were doing you you wanted to change In one part of the world, but you were changing the whole world because you were challenging the powers and saying to them, "Look, we want. We we believe we can be done a different way, or we believe that the profits are the people worth much more than the profits." Yeah, Mm.
1: yeah, but as importantly as that, that the essence of the boycott was that everyone could take part in the campaign. Mm. Mm. You could take action by not buying South African goods. You know, not buying Cape apples. Mm. Mm. Uh, You could have an effect. You were making a statement. And in a sense, it also made you feel good about doing something. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I I can remember, particularly as a student, um, the boycott Barclays campaign. It was probably one of the big campaigns amongst the student (laughs) movement. Um, And I can remember standing outside uh, Barclays Bank which was next door to Lloyds Bank, where me and my girlfriend of the time, uh, um, who's now my wife, uh, was, uh, were, were banking. And uh, we were standing outside and we set fire to a big check, uh, Barclays. And the Lloyds Bank manager walked past and he gave us a thumbs up. I wasn't sure was it was because he agreed with our campaign or whether it was uh, because, uh, it, you know, it, it was a rival organisation. But all the banks were involved. But... Mm. Barclays we chose particularly uh, because they had branches all over South Africa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, you know, amongst the student movement, you know, you 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 felt that you were making a bit of a difference mm. by, you know, taking your account away from Barclays. You were making a political statement uh, and changing it to another bank. C- can we say that 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 you could trace that
0: through to some actual... Change. I mean, did Barclays and I think Shell was the other big one. I remember those boycotts lead to, I don't know, politicians becoming more engaged, or indeed those companies saying changing their, you know,
3: their yeah. investment strategy. Barclays yeah. did. They disinvested. I, 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 not, yeah. But Not only that, I mean, even more. I mean, well, two things you should say that it was a. Uh, um, we bought some shares, Barclays shares, and we went to the AGM and they were active, you know, shareholders and and. Uh, um, <laughs> It was, it, there were great events as well. You know, I didn't know anything about shareholding, you know, um, but the, it was well organised. We went in and I, I, I remember someone just tapping my arm um, to calm me down because I was the only black person uh, going into the AGM, you know, and they, and they put two massive, you know, ex-military police security guards on me just when we went in there. But then we... Oh, all got in there. I think, uh, was it Dave Kemvin dressed as a um, dressed as in his suit? And all of a sudden, uh, at one point, out came you know the whole anti apartheid banner which David wrapped around his body, you know, at some point. And it was like, uh, you know, there was like, you know, there's you know, I say apartheid and so on. But that then um, led on to really effective campaigns. And uh, I suppose the point which I'm trying to get across, was that when the, the, I think it was the governor of the Bank of uh, South Africa and the bankers were telling them at some point that when Barclays wanted to go into America, because the anti-apartheid campaign was so effective and there was already, the students were already established there, they told them they had to change apartheid because they weren't going to get business in America. So that's the power of, of the consumers coming together, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a major factor in, in uh, you know, contributing to, to the ending of apartheid. I think,
1: yeah, that's right. I mean, as uh, Chitras mentioned, Barclays did withdraw from South Africa. And uh, I can remember w- being a member of the executive. I got a letter from the chairman of Barclays to tell us uh, what they were doing. I mean, personal letter to my home address. I don't know how mm-hmm. they got my home address, telling me that uh, this is what all that they were doing to withdraw from South Africa. Mm. So I think that that was successful. But, I mean, that was much later on, of course. I mean, you know, as we, be, we, as we were coming to the late 80s and uh, to the big changes that were taking place within the country itself. Yeah. The other thing that's, I suppose, related
0: to the boycotts was, was sanctions, mm. and that was a big call for the campaign. If you talk a bit about the relationship between the campaign and sanctions, and, yeah, how... To what extent do you do you sort of put sanctions down to the campaign?
2: Well, sanctions was the original campaign, which was to try and get governments all over the world, not mm-hmm. just Britain, to make sure that A, they did not trade with uh, South Africa, but B, actually sanction, put sanctions on, which would include cultural um, sanctions so people don't exchange things, uh, the trade ceases, and to ensure that arms were not uh, provided by this in other countries, mm. because we did. We absolutely did provide arms to the apartheid regime, um, other means of oppression, such as cufflings and things like that. It was amazing when you find out exactly what was provided by Britain to South Africa. Mm. Um, so the sanctions were at a government level to try and make sure that government continued to have to consider Um, the fact that they were supporting the apartheid regime. And of course, it's as I said, it's a wider campaign, international one, which was taken up by the United Nations, created the United Nations Centre Against Apartheid, Mm. which actually talked about sanctions as well. So it was very, very important. At the beginning, uh, I mean, there was a lot of resistance to it from all the governments Mm. because they had kiss-and-kin relationships with South Africa. So it was extremely difficult to ensure that sanctions were put in place, but that mm-hmm. was that was the government, the call to the governments, if you like, uh, yeah. get your yeah. politics right.
1: Sanctions was, of course, yeah, call to the government, and we 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 campaigned uh, vociferously to get the Thatcher government to change their policies. And famously, mm. you know, Thatcher uh, said she wouldn't move an inch on on the question of sanctions, but we knew it was really important because the you know the economy of South Africa depended on the trade that they had with mm. the Western governments, you know, and Britain was one of its biggest trading partners. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so at governmental level and at the international level, sanctions were very important, uh, particularly the arms embargo, oil, you know, you know so that's why we, we had the Shell campaign, because Shell was providing, fueling apartheid, fueling the oppression, of the of the majority of people in South Africa, but that was relate. You know, that was what the governments could do, but the boycott campaign, which was related, was what every person in the street could do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the two campaigns were interrelated. And when
0: when you think about the sort of cultural side and also sport, and that was another important mm. aspect. Yeah, I suppose there was my impression of it is that there was some sort of muddying of the waters. In other words. Some sports sort of went along with the boycott. Others, I think, like rugby, didn't. Mm -hmm. Some artists, I think, you you Mm -hmm. two or certain certain artists, sort of said they wouldn't go, and others, in the end, did. Paul Simon obviously Mm -hmm. made a famous album, Graceland, Mm -hmm. um, in South Africa. So that was how did all of that feel? And was it you know did did you find that that was a growing sort of sense of yeah okay this is unacceptable to be cultural sports person that. goes there how did that all of that work
2: i certainly felt it was unacceptable Mm. that uh, it was a very strong feeling you felt people were traitors when they took the decision to break the cultural boycott either the sports boycott the music boycott and people like paul simon who did so in the full knowledge that there was a boycott and the reason for it Mm. i think still could not explain to me why they did what they did Mm. And I think that the reason is, is the call came from people within the country. Mm. This is not something we devised for ourselves. This was something that people in South Africa were saying under repression. Please do not come to our country. Do not give succour. Do not comfort the apartheid regime. And culture is extremely important, isn't it? The South South Africans are really into sport, Mm. still are. Mm. Amazing stuff they're doing at the moment. And it was... Huge for them that they stopped being welcomed in those areas uh, that we did manage to keep the uh, cultural boycott going. Mm. And where it was broken, there were demonstrations. People did absolutely go onto the pitch and yeah. get pulled off, people like Peter Hain, for example. Mm. You know, I, mean, I suppose one of
1: the early campaigns was around the uh, stopping the cricket tours and the rugby tours. Mm. You know, those uh, campaigns a little bit before I got involved with the AAM in, um, in the late 60s um, and in the early I 70s, but they were very important because sport is about people working together.
3: Mm.
1: And, you know, and quite clearly South Africa was needed to be isolated because of their system of separating people. Um, and so, you know, they couldn't, you know, people within the country couldn't play sport together. So we were saying we shouldn't play sport with them. Yes.
3: And also, I mean, I think, I think Suresh has really hit the point of with sport, all sport, you know, people say sport is separate from politics, but within sport, what is it saying? It's saying, look, we come together uh, every single game that, you know, they shake their hands before they go to a rugby match and, you know, they're all friendly before us. So they, they say sport sends a message, it's a reflection of who we are mm-hmm. And so, what does it say if you you hate sport but you, um but still you can oppress blacks or the blacks can't come and play with you or you say below and so for me this this goes to the essence of really who we are so when you're when you're campaigning, what do you feel inside you but also then what what does your sport say about you and just as it can come it can bring us together it's also for a party regime. It was very clearly about saying that they were above, or the uh, and the blacks were inferior, and and therefore that sport boycott becomes even more important. And this isn't just like one a one-off campaign. If you look for it, say in terms of the Nazis and 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 so on, and Jesse Owen and so on, so sports always has a really powerful impact. And and we've we showed via the by the sport and cultural boycott what what effect it can have. And what I really I what I really loved was in terms of the English cricket team and Mike Gatin and so on mm. and, and and Tony Gregg thinking that they were all superior and then you've got this West Indian team, you know, the West Indians who are very clear and they they, they see cricket as challenging colonialism, but also there was a specific boycott and there's no way that, you know, the, uh, even though the black players have been offered money to go to South Africa, no way would they do it if they had any self-respect yeah and so on. So it's, yeah, yeah it's a really
2: I remember the call. Um getting stopped batting for apartheid, do oh, you remember yeah, yeah. that one?
0: <laughs> but something that's sometimes difficult for successful campaigners to reflect on is mistakes, and I don't know whether there were moments where you thought, well, this actually this was counterproductive or this didn't work. What mistakes can you remember if if any?
2: You know, I'm sure there were, but it's hard um yeah. looking back, as yeah. you say, it's difficult especially when it was something that was successful at the end oh, of the day. I, okay. You can think, go well,
3: ahead. I, I personally say, they didn't vote me onto the National Committee or the Executive well, Committee. That's, that's I mean, that's a massive mistake. Massive <laughs> mistake. outrageous.
2: <laughs> actually, that brings me on to what I think is, was a mistake, which I, or, or just something that they didn't think about properly. The three of us are all actually not white. Right. But that's unusual. The anti-apartheid movement was largely white. And I think their relationship with uh, community organizers in the in the Black and Ethnic Minority Committees, particularly Black, was not great. And it wasn't until the 80s, I think, that real attempts were made yeah. to engage with community leaders from the, the Black community. And people th- from that community were a little bit suspicious. Mm. You know, they were like, why are you coming to us now? Yeah. Because of course they were always anti-apartheid. That wasn't the problem. Mm. The problem was they didn't. Necessarily become members or engage with our campaigns, so I, I think that's something we could have reached mm. out before. We could have done some more work earlier.
3: Definitely, and then but you saw the 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 fantastic result of that when they did, mm. which was you know I mean I'm still envious of you. I, I, I was the chair of the Black Solidarity Committee, but true with Lee Jasper, good, big a race campaigner, um, facilitated a meeting between Mandela and uh, Stephen Lawrence's family. Mm-hmm. You know, and Doreen Lawrence, that was a turning of their campaign when they, when they actually met him. So it showed that, like, you know, while we're doing one campaign for uh, social justice, they're linked up together. And when we did work with the uh, black community, we could have a, um, a major an impact. impact both I, I think, and,
1: um, yeah, I think that was right. I mean, I think, you know, you know, some of us within, you know, non-white people uh, within the anti movement realized there was a connection between anti-racism in this country and the fight against apartheid. I mean, you know, for me, that's how I got, why I got involved Mm -hmm. in the anti-apartheid movement. I'd been, you know, as a teenager, I was very conscious, particularly of the the struggle in in america for civil rights mm-hmm. and uh, you know and the racism i experienced in this country and i was absolutely outraged when i got in, found out about Sa- what was happening in south africa how people were being separated you know uh, and how non white people were be being so oppressed so i think i think Chitra's right i think we as a movement could have got into working with Black communities and making that link between anti-racism here Mm. and uh, the apartheid system a bit earlier in our history.
3: And also, I'm not sure, uh, maybe I'm too gentle and I love the people, I really appreciate the people involved. I don't think it was, it wasn't necessarily a mistake in terms of whether there's a conscious choice. Because the point is that people were used to organising in their way. Mm. And and then there's new ways of organising and and there are new things. So, like, uh, for me, I got involved in anti-apartheid as a because I was lucky enough to get into university, you know, and um, and I, I I got involved in anti-apartheid because I thought apartheid was wrong. People always used to ask me, um, you know, I describe myself as a black, I'm black British, you know, that's what I do. When uh, my African friends, you know, they said, "What are you British?" You know, so when I got involved in anti-apartheid, you we were meeting these Africans, and they said, "How can you be British?" No, actually, we are. I'm born in England. I've got um, I've got you know Yoruba Nigerian heritage. But I'm black British, and that's that's a cultural thing there. And I think apartheid was wrong, just as I think apartheid is wrong in terms of in terms of the Middle East now. And so we so campaign on that because it's a, your belief in justice, and that, so that's what was really important for me. And in, in terms of anti-apartheid, that was around South Africa, and it was wrong. It was around race, but we believe in that because I remember Trevor Hudson raising the issue of the Middle East and the, uh, and apartheid you know, in the Middle East and saying that was one of the things that caused a major issue around the world. We, we'll have to wind up in a
0: moment, but I just want to leave you with one, we'll ask you one final, also quite difficult question, which is <laughs> what are the lessons of apartheid, of the apartheid campaigns and the movement for modern campaigners? And can we tease out, you know, are there things that you think either you see modern mistakes that, Campaigners make now that they can learn from, or indeed, you know, things that they are doing that are
3: reflective of of that time. Can I? Can I? Yeah. Because we, we were lucky enough. Um, I want to mention uh, Leila Kabawa used to be the chair of uh, ACTA, and um, uh, she was saying uh, she, Leila was a, a from the War, it. It was a refugee from the Biafran War. Her family was refugee from Biafran War, and um, uh, and her mother, a very strong mother, and her mother uh, just passed away, and Leila was talking. And she was saying the one thing for her about the apartheid movement is that you should, you know, it gave her hope because everyone told us you couldn't change apartheid, you couldn't end apartheid. The press said that, the the government said it. it was a big, there were so many links with it. And the fact is, ordinary people came together, you know, starting off as suicide from a small group of people and they built a campaign and when ordinary people come together and you're, you know, you organize well enough, you can change the world. And that's the most important lesson, you know, for it. So, like, uh, um, Lady was just saying, you, you've really got to see this. You've got to understand that, you know, people like uh, David Cameron. One of his first jobs was a PR for, you know, for companies who were invested in South Africa. That's how established it was. But because people believed it was wrong and they organised, they changed the world. So whenever the next generation have been told, oh, no, it's too hard, you can't, you know, be, look in your heart, really believe in that, and you, you find people and you build allies and you'll be surprised. You don't know when it's going to happen, but if you really focus on what's possible and what you believe is possible, you can really make a change.
1: Yeah, I think the, the two important lessons, I mean, I think that, uh, as Tim has said, one about persistence. I mean, being Mm -hmm. clear about what your goal is Mm -hmm. and pursuing it. And uh, I think the other one was involving people from where they are at, Mm -hmm. from all over the country and appealing to their uh, moral sense, if you like. Um, So I think, you know, organizing across uh, society in all walks of life is very, very important. I think that that's what uh, the anti movement managed to do. With you know, as I said, we, we talked earlier about all the different sorts of organisations we had. But as
2: well, yeah, I agree with all of that. I also think that ensuring that you give voices to people who don't have voices, because that, I keep saying, even in Axa, I keep saying this isn't about us. This is about people who are living under extreme conditions who can't cope or who are living in conditions which are obviously unjust and giving them the voice and making sure that that voice is what we use in our campaigns mm. not you know so we can't on high sitting here devise a campaign we listen to people who it is affecting mm. we listen to yeah. what they want mm. and we do what they want yeah. and i think that's really really yeah. really important and
3: but also i think that i was um i was on a course and one woman was saying that how she was really impacted by what was happening with Palestine mm. and so on. And she was she was crying when we raised it. And then, but she said, that, that she reflected and said that the fact that then she took some action, you know, about it. And that's a, that's a really important thing. You know, even if you think it's a small thing, you can make a change. You taking action means that you can build something. And, you know, look, everyone now talks about the environment and the climate crisis and so on. Gretchen Thunberg started off as a small, you know, doing one small demonstration and it spread. You know, all I said, uh, I think Margaret Mead's associates said that in order to change the world, all you really need is a small group of people who are really committed you know, and that's all that's ever changed the world. So I would say to all the campaigners that don't worry about your mistakes. What do you believe in? Build your allies, work together. Uh, You know, if it's a good cause, people are going to come to you and you just don't know where they're going to come from, but they're going to come. But also make action, everyone can make,
1: carry out an action Mm. that will be part of the change. Well, I think that sounds
0: like a good place to draw it to a close. Thank you all of you so much for your stories and your memories but also your lessons and your and your insights so thanks so much and yes we'll we'll um we'll see each other again soon i hope thank you Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. The interview, I thought, was really interesting in terms of what my three guests had to say about the apartheid system lessons and, and also the other memories and stories. So I, th- I hope you will uh, leave a review of the requisite number of stars and also, and also subscribe to the po- podcast as soon as you possibly can, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. So I will see you on the next one. Bye-bye.